Well, welcome everybody. You've all made it to the very last panel of the day. Congratulations to all of you. Um, welcome to the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Danae Hirsch. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it is my privilege to welcome you today to what I think is a really cool panel called Lessons from the Edge, Understanding Humans in the Pursuit of Peak Performance. We have three incredible panelists, starting with Chris Cassidy. He is a retired NASA astronaut uh, and Navy SEAL. He's currently president and CEO of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. We also have Olav Alexander Bru, Boo, sorry, who's head of performance for Norway triathlon team, and Roberta Groner, who is a professional runner. Um, she's currently coach of USTF and USATF and Roadrunners Club of America. And our moderator today, who's moving off from the hot seat, he was a panelist earlier, uh, is now moderating this, and he is a performance coach and author. So with that, I will uh, pass it on to you, Steve. Thanks so much. So I'm really excited about this because, you know, we bring some endurance flavor to a NBA team sport conference, which is really cool. I'm also excited because the topic is life at the edge, and if you look at you three, is all of you are like explorers and boundary pushers. Like you've all been some place or done something that very few people have. And what I'd like to start with is just painting the picture for what performing at the edge of your domains looks like. And we'll start with Roberta since uh, you're next to me. And I want to give some context. So I want you to talk about one specific race. So in 2019, at the World Championships in the Marathon, you placed sixth. But it was in Doha, Qatar in the summer. The race started at midnight to cool things off. So it was a cool 90 degrees with almost 80% humidity with a dropout rate of 41% in the race. And these are the world's best marathoners and 41% dropped out. So walk me through that challenge. Oh, I also have to mention, like you were, I believe, 42 years old when your competitors were, you know, a decade younger. Yeah. Um, walk me through that challenge and what it was like. Well, first I'll correct you, 41. 41. I don't want to Sorry. give myself that much credit. Um, so, you know, uh, Steve was my coach at the time, and we talked a lot about preparing for the race. And so I think that takes a lot of consideration when you're going into a race where you know the conditions matter. You can't neglect the temperature the conditions will be. So we discussed pace. We went from my usual pace of 545, I think, per mile to 615. Um, and we kind of started with that. And um, preparing for the race, I, used, I was wearing layers in New York City. I was trying to get used to running in the heat. I would do my long runs in the middle of 90 degree days just to kind of prepare for what that was going to feel like. Um, so that was just kind of leading into the race pre preparation wise. Um, being at midnight, it was a seven hour time difference from New York City, so I just kept on that time schedule. I slept during the day in Doha, and I would get up and I would stay awake during the night, so that midnight kind of felt like 5 p.m. for me, so that wasn't too bad. Um, so those were kind of like preparations for the race. Um, and then the race itself, it was just going out and enjoying the moment and being smart too. Um, <laughs> uh, we know we were going into crazy conditions. I had ice 
in my headband, I was drinking a bottle every lap, and uh, these were things I just did just to keep going. Uh, all right, I want to <laughs> turn to, to Olaf because I think, you know, you recently, or relatively recently had athletes go first and third at, at Kona, I believe. And talk about extreme and endurance world is we're moving from, Roberto's running an, a marathon in two and a half hours. You're looking at athletes running, you know, or competing for seven and a half, seven hours and 40 minutes. What's it like preparing people for such an extreme challenge? And I want to phrase this correctly. Is generally in the past, we used to think Kona is unpredictable, chaos, anything can happen. But correct me if I'm wrong, the athlete who won, you predicted his time within a minute. So how do you make the extreme predictable? Uh, I, well, it comes down, of course, to doing uh, the research, of course, up front. Uh, many people have raised uh, Kona um, for years. So, of course, there we already have pretty good understanding, a little bit of what the times are, what the weather are, whether it's like temperature, humidity, uh, wind conditions, all those factors that mainly influence um, or that can potentially influence uh, the race. And of course, there are always the myths and the legends that people like to talk about also in Kona, but that's something that we just decide on, okay, we, that, that's, that's not our, our, our domain. Uh, so we focus on the things that we can do something with. And um, uh, of course, today, one of the things that is changing now extremely rapidly is one, computational power but also the ability to just uh, scrape information all around the place to basically be able to evaluate what is really going on. And at the same time also, uh, that's on, let's say, on an environmental level. And then on the other side, also what's happening really now is also the ability to start to bring, let's say, human research from an in vivo uh, or into, um, yeah, from in vitro, in vitro to in vivo, uh, and you are able to understand actually not only in the lab, but actually what's happening in the field also with real-time uh, technology. Just to give an example, uh, the Apollo 11 expedition, for example, when we got the iPhone already there, I don't remember exactly the numbers now. We were talking about computational power that was in the million scale uh, more powerful than what was available to them. And the same thing is also happening basically with technology that allows us to pair in real time inside the body what is happening when you're exercising. Uh, and that also enables us to get a really good understanding of, uh, of human performance. And then when you bring together the environmental factors and the human performance and where they are, and you start to run big data analysis on this, you can start to really understand where you're going to be uh, in the end, and that's uh, a little bit disappointed that he was a minute slower, but uh, it was a minute faster, I would be happy, but uh, that's, uh, that's okay. He won. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I want to come back to you on that data point, but I want to first turn to Chris. You know, with Roberta and then the athletes, Olaf, coach, if things go wrong, you know, they slow down a little bit. They drop out. You... In your experience as a Navy SEAL and astronaut, that's not the case. If things go wrong in your preparation or in the task you're performing at, either yourself or others who you're leading or on the team, you know, could be seriously injured or, or die. 
Can you paint the picture of what it's like going through a stressful, maybe a, a space walk where it's, you're prepared, but you have that, you're on that edge where it's, it's not just I drop out of the race. Right. So in all of these things, training and preparation is, is the key, right? And it's the same thing for a, a, a SEAL mission or, or a spacewalk or space flight. Specifically to a spacewalk for your, for, to your answer, to answer that question, um, we do a bunch of training in this gigantic pool in Houston. NASA has an acronym for everything, gigantic pool, and NASA means NBL, Nutri Buoyancy Lab. And, um, and we spend hours in that thing training and preparing and running through the timeline of, of a spacewalk. But there's a couple key differences. It does a fantastic job of simulating the environment with a couple key differences. One is in a real space flight, you're going around the world every 90 minutes, so 45 minutes in the dark and kind of to Roberta's point where the environmental conditions matter, and 45 minutes in light and 45 minutes in dark. We don't simulate that in the pool. So the first time you're exposed to that as a new spacewalker, and for me, I had my hand on the handrail, I crack open the handle, and it was daytime, and I remember seeing Earth down there 250 miles below going by. And a week before, this was on my space shuttle launch, my first mission, a week before launch, I received an email from a good buddy of mine, Drew Foistel, who was another astronaut, and he said, all the email said was, loosen your grip. I had no idea what he was talking about. What do you mean, loosen my grip? But at that moment, I knew what he meant, because if you could have seen my hands through the gloves, mm. I would have ripped I was about ready to rip the handle off the, off the metal. But it's all in, uh, I think fear kind of ratchets up with uncertainty, and, the, and, and you can damp down fear with damping down uncertainty, and that's what training and preparation does. And, and we tell new astronauts, hey, just pretend you're in the pool. You don't look at the big blue thing down there. You'll get distracted or you get scared, because it is scary. Um, and you never in training can, can exactly nail down what thing is gonna not go right, because it never goes right. We were talking about this before we walked on. You can train and plan and run your perfect race, but there's always some little nuance that's gonna be different, and space flight's the same thing. But it's that base of training that everybody has that's common that you can then deviate quickly all under the mission, the, the mission parameters. So Chris, I wanna expand on that. Is I found a quote that you said once that said, going to space is going to combat. How, how, what do you mean by that, and how do you compare those two experiences? Well, in combat, the bad guys have guns, and they're shooting at you, and, and stuff is, is happening. In space, the enemy is, doesn't have a gun. The enemy is the environment. The enemy is looking to break your gear, looking to break your equipment, looking to sabotage your life support equipment. Uh, and so I've found having a decade plus of experience as a military guy, if I applied that same mindset to space flight, like space is trying to kill me. It's trying to kill my friends, it's trying to kill me. And if I think that way, not in the evil, malicious, boy, that guy's crazy way, but just have that mental preparation, it really, really helps to, to not take things for granted and get, compl get complacent. Roberta, when you're preparing for a, a, a marathon, a major marathon, what do you think about that mindset? Do you have a similar approach? Yes. Uh, well, there's always the, I need to show up every day. Uh, I feel like the training 
Um, and what you put in every day is gonna help in the end, and that's kind of where my story began. I took a break for 10 years, and it wasn't in a path where I came back into running, and it's, I was a pro athlete. It took 10 years to get to the level I was at, so this is hard work, dedication, um, time, uh, and just for me also, it's my children showing them that, hey, life isn't a straight arrow, you know? Sometimes you have turns and twists, and if you just keep showing up, you know, things can happen. Uh, Olaf, I want your opinion. You are known in the endurance world as the, like, physiology testing guy. Like, I, I think every picture of your athletes is blood dripping from lactate tests all the time. But on this topic, where Chris and Roberta are talking about the mindset in the mental game, I wonder how you fit that in or consider that into your athletes' training. I think that uh, there are uh, many perspectives that one can apply, and but in, in let's say in just in that context, we are working. And I think that uh, for us, I want to establish a constructive, a constructive uh, approach. So for me, it's more about never being complacent about where you are, but just when you are really doing something good, the question is more like, can we do even faster? How can we do this even faster? How did we become this fast? So there's always this drive, not necessarily where we are competing against our competitors. Of course we are, but equally much rather that let's say that we have a development target and we say, okay, when we are there, then we know that we are in a good position. But we are not, we are not, that's not how we put it. It's rather just how fast can we go? And I remember I, was, I, I used normally this matrix where I, I, to systemize, let's say, qualitative information. So when I sit down, talk with my athletes, I, I, we, in the past leading into Tokyo Olympics, then it was more like, okay, uh, the, who do we think will be the Olympic champion and what is his profile? and where are we compared to that profile. After the Olympics, uh, which was uh, obviously very successful for us, um, uh, we, we switched much more the mind to, okay, where do we go now? Because now we are the Olympic champion. So where do we go now? And then it became much more, okay, just, okay, what do we think is humanely possible? So for example, like, for example, when you broke down Kona, or Ironman there, it was more like, okay, if we just look at the fastest swimmer in the world, not the fastest triathlete, we just look at the fastest swimmer on a 1500 meter, no, on, on, on three or four or open water, but 3.8K, fastest cyclist over 180K, so the specialist, like the Tour de France cyclist, how fast are they able to go over 180K, and how fast can we, uh, is the fastest marathoners in the world? How close can we get to that? And of course, there we already start to see that in the swimming, we are not too far off. Biking, uh, well, probably there we are already are the fastest. We are faster than the two other fast cyclists. In marathon is where the big gap is. So why try to improve the performance of a previous runner in, in Kona by maybe one minute, something like that? Why not aim for the marathon speed of the fastest marathoners instead and try to understand what are the limitations for, for how far? And now, of course, the question is just, when we, when, when we basically broke all the records, is just where is the limits to peak human performance? And that has become the new goal, the new passion, uh, just to see how fast is it possible really to develop a human, and is actually the science that we even are basing a lot of our assumption on right? Have they actually, are the things that they actually didn't know about when they did the research that we 
are now able to get an insight into and leverage and make humans even more fast and actually create a new paradigm for, for how fast athletes really can be. So uh, I want to go back to that. What are the, like that's, you're an, you're an outsider from the sport, from the traditional like path towards coaching in, this, in the sport of triathlon. How did that shape your view and allow you to kind of like look at things through a different lens? Because what you're explaining is we've had great triathletes and coaches for years and years and years, but no one's quite taken your approach until you came along. I, th I think actually that was a little bit my strength as well, because if I wanted to understand all the things that uh, we needed to manage to, to develop peak human performance from a textbook perspective, then I would still already there, even if I were able to consume all the text that is out there, probably be at the deficit, because there is also a part of you know, both the psychological aspect, but also, of course, there are a lot of things in physiology that we still don't know. What instead I did was rather, okay, this is the performance of the athletes, and then rather start monitoring them and understanding what was going on, rather from a more like from a just observatory, or from just from a, yeah, uh, observational perspective, uh, and then try to see if, okay, if we do this, what is happening, and now actually in real time see what is happening with each individual. Uh, so each individual becomes more of a research project uh, just to see how fast uh, is it, or where, where does the development stop? Okay, so Chris, I wanna turn to you on that kind of topic where, you know, all of the talking about pushing the edge and seeing what's possible. I mean, you've done that in two domains, but like, how do you, like, how do you not settle and let complacency sit in? Well, as a side note, I love riding the Peloton now and it, and it pisses me off to see my own personal <laughs> best and, and I think, how could I do that that day? I'm so far off of that performance today. And it's really interesting uh, to hear, hear your comments because I, to me that's every day trying to get back to a number that um, you know, in the perfect setting I was able to achieve. But to, to your point, um, it's tough to, to fend off complacency. And, and I think that in a team sport, and space flight and, and SEAL missions are team sports, each other, the team helps boost everybody up. I have a lot of respect and, and awe actually for individual athletes and like Roberta where it's just you and you don't have somebody necessarily on your team. Maybe you do, there's another runners or there's communication during the race, I don't know, but um, I, I get a lot of, of um, personal motivation from not wanting to be the guy that lets down this person or that person and, and I, I like football and I grew up here in New England and Bill Belichick is of course the coach of the Patriots and he's famous for saying just do your job you know block your guy and uh, and I, I that resonates with me just do my job on a launch just look at my data on a spacewalk just do my tasks and if somebody needs me to chip in to help you're, you're there and the reason if we struggle as a team it's it I don't want to be the one that let anybody down. So in, in, you've worked for NASA, Navy SEALs, two of the, you know, when I think of teams, like those are like high, high team individuals. What are your kind of takeaways from like going through that experience where you're saying this is what leadership and team culture is about? Yeah, it's interesting. I thought a lot about this. It, 
both those missions seem different, right? Bad, bad guys in military stuff and space flight and we come in peace. But at the end of the day, both missions are exactly the same. It's a group of people trying to accomplish a risky, difficult task and, and do it safely and balance risk versus mission success. And I imagine it's the same thing in the sports world. Do you train too much? That's a risk. Do you not train enough? That's a risk. And how do you balance that versus the success of winning the race? And the same thing is true in SEAL missions and space, space missions. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a tough thing. But I, I will say that um, this, in, in the military, we have this concept of commander's intent. And I think that that's a fantastic concept. And what it means is, is the individuals who are in the arena executing, as long as they know the vision for what the mission success looks like, in the, in the element, those people are empowered to make decisions based on what they think and understanding the situation to, to achieve that success. Because oftentimes, you can't talk to your coach or you can't talk back to headquarters to get updated information on how you should go. You just need to execute. So, Roberto, I want to come to you since we mentioned individual sports are often tough because you don't always have teammates, and even your teammates are your competitors, right? Yeah. You're trying to beat them for the spot on the Olympic team or whatever have you. So how do you balance that out? Um, I think, yeah, it's an individual sport, right? I mean, um, but there is a team aspect, like, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, like when I was on a college team, you know, you're competing against other teams, and you're, but you're still putting your own effort in. And running is such an individual mental sport. And I think um, I just take it as, for me, showing up my best version and doing the best that I can do. And <clears throat> I'm so sorry. And only being able to control my outcome. And that's where... I think sometimes we think, well, what's this competitor going to do? Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, how can I race? But really, you're just racing yourself. And if you do your best, things fall into place. And that's kind of how worlds happen for me. I never prepared to, to see what the, who the competitors were. Um, it was really just about how do I show up the best for myself. And I still compete when I get to the start line, though. I mean, a competitor kicks in, but... I don't focus so much on them, but my own control. So, so off of that, Olaf, you've got two of the guys best in the world, training in the same group, competing in the same races. They're teammates, but they're also, you know, vying for that win at Kona. How in the world do you keep that on track without the egos or whatever getting in the way? Uh, I think that, or it is being mindful about it. Actually, one of the things that I, we, today I could say probably that we are able to bring people from sedentary level to world-class level almost by automation. Uh, bringing people from world-class to world champion is uh, still an art uh, because that's where also the human aspect comes in and it requires uh, sometimes, or not sometimes, but probably always, uh, things that we're not able to quantify. And one of the things that we also do, or we have good experience with, is that when you put great people in the same place together also, that creates, uh, that can create good development as long as it is, uh, let's say, a fruitful environment. So one of the things that I made as a rule in my team was that uh, 
on every camp we went, everybody had to make a presentation or, or do some research and do a presentation on a thing that they consider a competitive advantage that they had. We had to share our competitive advantages. The reason for this is one, to avoid getting complacent, because when you do that, you actually push yourself out of the comfort zone and you have to look for new competitive advantages because you're sharing what is you consider your competitive advantage. But now since you share that, suddenly your teammate, or not teammate, but let's say, well, your training buddy, but your fiercest competitor in a race, he also now suddenly have access to that competitive advantage. And you have to present it, of course, in a way that you go into a little bit to the details and how it works and how you employ it and these kind of things. So like really making a good presentation. We're making a thing out of this. And then uh, this forces you, again, to avoid this complacency where you need to push yourself to find new competitive advantages. But also the good thing with that is that if you know that you are on team, or not on team, but you're training together with the guy to beat also in the race, then you also have a very good control over your competitor as well. You want to go into the race and know as much as possible about your competitor. That's a much better position to be in and then not knowing who, who is going to be your strongest competitor. Because then, in the end, uh, when you come there, uh, the chances for that you are winning will be probably much higher than, than if you don't. So by this, we create a good environment where we are sharing, we are caring, and uh, that's where also the art comes in because uh, for me, uh, I had a very nice conversation uh, before today, and the question was um, a little bit what I thought was a little bit of the key to where we are, and love was actually the word that actually came up there. So actually having this very strong feelings for each other and that you really want the best to really help the, the guy that you have next to you to be the best in the world and you're willing to put in whatever it takes to make that happen. Uh, that's something we still can't do with technology. That is the human aspect that just brings out the excellence in people. And I think making rivalry, making uh, between people, I think that this actually just ends up drawing energy from you rather than adding energy. And, and that also comes back a little bit to the team part of it. You re really want to be in an environment where you have partners, where you have people around you, and everybody just contribute with energy, positive energy, to the development. That is uh, that's why uh, it's always about humans first. So we have the physiology guru <laughs> <laughs> telling us it's about humans first. It is. I, I love that. And I think what we're getting at is the nuance of, you know, the topic of this is life on the edge, peak performance. We're at a data conference. And what we're getting at is like, yes, the data, yes, the physiology, we got to know the demands. But we also have to hold this human part over here too because at the end of the day, that's who we are. I, I'm... Wondering, Chris, expanding off of that, maybe, is do you see, did you see the same things with what he's talking about of like love and support essentially from your teammates in the team endeavors you were in? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it, it, when he was talking, it reminded me of um, a, a time in Hell Week. So SEAL training is six months long, and the first chunk of it is all about physical fitness. And, and the fifth week of, those, of that six months, 
is Hell Week, starts on Sunday, ends on Friday. And it's just a big blur of activity and there's lots of stuff you can look up about it. And it's all, it's really a challenging week. Um, and I remember, and normally you eat every meal in the dining hall, but Wednesday in the psychological, in the spirit of psychological warfare, the instructors feed you a cold MRE on the beach. And so I remember sitting there Wednesday night, my bottom's in the wet sand, my feet are in the waves, I'm shivering trying to open this MRE and the sun is setting off, off of the horizon on the coast of San Diego. And I remember just looking off in the distance thinking to myself, this is just not so fun. And I wasn't thinking about quitting, but I was just in my own feeling sorry for myself mode. And right then, my good buddy next to me, Don, he, I don't know if he just instinctively knew or he looked and saw the look in my eye, but he said, hey, and he might have even like fit the physical nature of tap, tapping my arm. I looked and locking eyes with him, I realized like, oh, I'm here for Don, Don's here for me. However cold I am, Don's that cold. However tired I am, Don's that tired. And it's, it's that, that love, that bond between each other. I don't even know if he said anything, but that just was enough. That human interaction and tap was enough to bring me right back to it. And okay, let's get on with this and eat our food and get the calories on board so that we can do what we're, we're gonna do. But um, I wanted to uh, shift a quick thought to um, the human side of it. And one of the things that, that is really important, not so much that I found in the military because it's very hierarchical structure. There's clearly somebody in charge and then there's people that do stuff. Uh, not that the person in charge doesn't do anything, but we've all had those bosses, right? Uh, the, the, but on space flight, there's this notion of leadership and followership and flowing between the two of them. And because you might be the commander of the mission, but on tomorrow, that other person who is the commander of the spacewalk, or two days from now, uh, somebody else is in charge of the robotic operations. So you have to sort of check your ego at the door, check your, I'm in charge of this mission somewhere else, and seamlessly flow between leadership and followership. I don't know if there's a tie there, but my brain, that's where my brain was going while, these, while the panel was talking, um, because that's really effective teams can all do that and understand like flow, was it the Kung Fu guy that said be water, you know, flow into where the needs of the team are to fill those gaps. And, and sometimes you're in charge and sometimes you're not. I love that. I mean, it, it's almost like keeps your ego at bay because you have to keep switching perspectives. Yeah. Right, and, and that allows that team to flourish. Um, off of that, Olav, I'd love to ask you about, so you said the human component. How do you, how do you cultivate that? Like, can you cultivate that in that team environment, that love aspect for world-class competitors? Yes. Uh, I will, when, when you asked that, I would actually say it, it, it starts with love, yeah. actually. I think that going in, going in and say, uh, maybe, but going in and saying that I really, uh, that we are here together and we really want, we are on a mission together uh, and uh, I am going to do whatever it takes from my side to help you achieve what both you and we or I want to achieve. That I think is uh, probably one of the most crucial things. But I think it starts with words, 
but it has to continue with actions because if it only becomes words, then at some point it, it loses its value. So, but I think that we all very, I think we all know when we see excellence or when we see people that are just committing 100% to what, what we do or what they do. And I think that one of the things that, uh, because I, 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 what you say about uh, like filling in really resonates with me because there's a lot of things that I am not good at all, but you don't have the resources around you immediately to help alleviate that situation. And then you basically have just to go in and do whatever it takes to try to do something about it. And at the same time, also maybe reassure that now we, we, uh, we are on the call, we are getting access to those kind of people, we are moving there, we are, we are just dropping whatever it takes to make that happen. And when you see that this action is there, whether it's two o'clock in the night mm. or if it's two o'clock in the day, I think that also then as an athlete, you see that, for example, what's important for me, I can never, for me, it would be strange and it wouldn't be very um, trustworthy if I asked my athletes to become world champions if I didn't expect the exact same performance for myself. I also have to be the world champion in coaching my athletes, and that is whatever it takes to basically help drive that situation. We can't sit on our ass and say, no, that's, that's not what I, I, I can't, that's not my expertise, or that's not what I do. You just have to do what is required when it is required, more or less. There. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna contrast this now. Roberta, I wanna talk about you. Achieving excellence. Olaf's talking, doing whatever it takes, going all in, essentially. You are, and were at the time, full-time nurse, have kids, performing at a high level. Do you think that brings some advantage or drawback to your performance? I mean, my situation obviously came, at, came back into the career of running a little bit later in life. So... I started with no expectations, right? There was, I just got back into running. I, I, I stopped running at a collegiate level and just after having some children, I was like, oh, let's go out for a run one day. And I discovered that I, I missed it and I loved it. And 10 years later, I'm running at a world-class level and I still am at 45. And for me, yes, it's a different perspective. I have all these things, whereas Running is my passion, and it leads me to, I have this success with it, but it's not my only passion. I have my children, I have my work, I coach now too, so I'm paying it forward in the sport. So I feel like everything is internal, not external for me. Meaning I don't, um, you know, if I was a pro athlete and had this career and had to run for money, I think there's a different aspect on it, whereas I get to do something I love and it's just all about what I do in the day. Do you think that allowed you to achieve what you, so what I'm getting at is, correct me if I'm wrong, is as a college runner, you were, you were, you were okay, yeah. right? But okay. no one would have seen your college times and been like, oh yeah, this, this, she's going to a world championship. Yeah. No. Do you think that perspective allowed you to tap into your potential that you couldn't when you were in college or something? Um, the pers my perspective now? Yeah. yeah. I think, honestly, when I was in college, I didn't love the sport. Mm. I did it because someone said, hey, you're decent at this. And I never really grasped it, like, mm. right? I didn't, and I felt like I walked away from it easily. 
And then I came back and I was like, I love this. It's something that I became passionate about. And therefore, I just opened up all these doors for me uh, through, I think, just being open to see what happens, saying yes. You know, I say yes to things. And I, you know, I was told not to go to Worlds by multiple people. Oh, you're, gonna, you're not going to have a PR. It's going to be a horrible race. But I, I experienced, I got to be on a team, a world-class team, um, and place sixth. And if I said no, I wouldn't have experienced any of it. So it's, OK, we, we've got love coming up yes. again. You know, this seems to be the theme. Not that I thought it was coming. But yeah. I want to ask, ask Chris about this, because like your career it like yells at saying yes to challenges and seeking out challenges. So I'm wondering, hearing what Roberta said on like it's finding that internal motivation drive, do you think that is central to achieving you know, your peak performance? Uh, yes. The, 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 the answer is, again, I keep coming back to, for me, my DNA is wired where I, I just don't want to let the folks down, whether it was let my, my uh, family down my, my, when I was a kid, or my family now, or my co co coworkers. So if, if in a professional environment and on the mission, which specifically, or in, in intense training, there's something that I need to step up and deliver on, that in and of itself is a motivation for me. Like, I don't have any, any um, secret thing where I, I, I think about uh, whatever, but it, it, it's just, um, yeah, I'm struggling with my words because I don't really have a crisp answer for you. Probably the highest pressure I felt was after I returned from spaceflight, um, I got invited to the Houston, a Houston Rockets game. And, and uh, in baseball, they throw out the, the first pitch, you know, somebody can do that. And at the Houston Rockets, they have somebody who shoots a three throw right after the national anthem, right before the, the tip off. And if you make it, the charity gets 10 grand. If you miss it, they get like a hamburger. And, um, and I, that was intense pressure to shoot that bottom of the net, I'll say. But um, it was amazing pressure, and I had a new appreciation for athletes on that stage uh, because all the eyes are on you at that, that moment. Do you, so in that moment, do you go back to your military astronaut training? Do you think like, hey, I've, I've gone in space, this isn't a big deal? Or? It's funny you should say that, because in that moment at that free throw I'm talking about, um, I thought about my first spacewalk and said, just put the arena out of your head, put the world, put the earth below you out of your head, just pretend you're in the pool. So I just thought, okay, I'm in my high school gym just shooting around, um, and that helped, right? Like, it, it took me out of that crazy environment that I wasn't comfortable in, dialed it back down to something I could get my brain around, and stepped into that world. So this gets me to a question, and we'll start with Chris. I might ask it to all of you, which is, do you think high-class performance is performance? Meaning, you know, the Michael Jordans of basketball are probably pretty similar to whoever, whatever the best Navy SEAL is in terms of that mindset, dealing with pressure, dealing with, like, executing under stress. Yeah. There's, there's clearly, there's innate ability and body shape and size, right? Like a, uh, Michael Phillips is the perfect dimensions to be the swimmer that he is and yada, yada, yada. Um, 
And same thing with spacewalking. If you can fill up the spacesuit, if you have longer arms and a broader chest, the more you fill up the volume of the spacesuit, the more you can manhandle the suit. If you're uh, people with narrower shoulders, can't, you can't touch your hands together. Uh, and so there's some degree of just you're born for that or you're not. Uh, and then the performance part, I think that's where it kind of creeps into the mental yeah. Uh, where, where you can put things aside, you can compartmentalize, you're able to um, just deal with what's in front of you and put the distractions of life aside and, and deal with that, the alligator, alligator closest to the boat. Now there's all kinds of other stuff that Oleg study, Olaf studies, um, but I'm just talking about that yeah. mental part. So I want to turn to Olaf on that question. Is Earlier you said, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, Going from whatever to you know world level, ah, we can do that. But going from world level to world champion is another level. How do you dis how do you figure out what those key parameters are to make that jump? That is the human aspect. That is, uh, I think, uh, it it. Yeah, it's actually resonant very well with what you said as well. And, and uh, you need people that are driven. You need to find your passion. Uh, and it, it, re it requires a drive to basically even succeed or let's say supersede uh, or surpass uh, yourself. Uh, because sometimes when you are looking for um, we very often talk about the body has a lot of limita limitations, or let's say not limitations, but the body has uh, uh, safety mechanisms. And learning to basically override some of those safety mechanisms is something uh, that it requires a determination and a drive uh, where you sometimes have to even uh, surprise yourself, I think. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, on that question, I want to ask, I want to start with you, Olaf. The topic is life at the edge, peak performance. You're the guy who always pushes it, finds the next thing. What's, what, what are you dabbling in and thinking the next thing is? There are a couple of things that we are doing. So, one, of course, for myself, uh, I still consider a lot of the things that I do, uh, even though there are groundbreaking in some domains and very deep, or let's say beyond what had been done before, still high-level research. By, by that, I'm, I need to keep it on a level where I'm able to transform what we learn into practice. Uh, there's a, I, a little bit the problem today, I feel, with a lot of the research that is being done is that it's become so narrow that it's very hard to bring it back up again to a level where you can uh, put it into practice. Uh, it's it's to, too out of context. So uh, some of the places, um, one is technology development that allows us to even better evaluate in real time, and not only in real time, but actually as non-invasively and non-intrusively, continuously on our athletes, but performance metrics. And what I, I normally, I, I differentiate between what I call like concentration metrics and performance metrics or volumetric metrics. So for example, 
velocity over a given distance. So from A to B, that's a true performance metric. You can't argue. It doesn't matter what kind of numbers you have in the lab or other things like that. If you're the fastest from A to B, you are the fastest from A to B, no matter what your numbers are. And then, of course, there are several components to, that goes into developing that kind of performance. And there are like, I actually very often like to have more like a physics approach to developing performance than, than a physiological approach to it. So what I like with physics is that we very often we talk about input and output, and then we have the efficiency factor that sits in between there. And then we can call that physiology, we can call that uh, psychology, and these kind of things. But there's an input and there's output. Input, obviously, there's no psychology, there's no physiology if you don't get in some calories, because then you're going to be flat out in the end. And, uh, and, and basically, on the other side, you can measure this or quantify this very accurately today with simple systems, how fast are you moving from A to B. So, of course, one now I've done is that I basically split this into four different domains. So one is the velocity domain, obviously. And then we have, the, let's say, the work domain or the mechanical power and how you produce, let's say, work. Because you can produce a lot of work, but it doesn't mean that you're moving in the right direction. So you're, let's say, you're biomechanically inefficient. And then, of course, to do work, you need energy. So that's where the metabolic power comes in. So you need to convert, let's say, substrates of fats, carbohydrates, or carbohydrates mainly, into, into, uh, into work. But now, of course, we are also looking at fuel itself. So basically, how are the food we are eating also driving performance? Because we know there are both diseases associated with different foods, and there are benefits uh, associated with different foods. So actually, um, now uh, one of the things that we are preparing is actually where we are taking. So uh, when my athletes are preparing the meal and the, this is they're going to eat, we, we are looking now either whether we need to have like a duplicate of that meal, or we can take a sample of that meal. And we're taking that and we freeze dry it, bring it to a bomb calorie meter and burning the energy that is in that food. But at the same time, because food doesn't go immediately through the system either, there are some uh, slow, let's say, slow components to that. Yeah. That means also that we need to measure this over some time, and basically we have to burn, collect, and burn all the feces as well. So that means basically when the guys are out riding and if they, and, uh, let's say, accidentally have to go to the toilet in the woods yeah. or in the forest, that means basically that I need to bring a bag and they have to shift in that bag. I need to collect everything, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> so with this, of course, when then we can understand how efficiently, for example, we, because if, if we sat and ate, for example, chicken, we would probably take up the nutrients in the food differently or the calories in the food differently. And that means that some of us will take up different foods. And in, for example, in Formula One, it's banned to basically, you're not allowed to develop your own fuel. You have to race with the same, everybody is racing with the same fuel because we know that if you are, have the ability to start to basically look at optimizing the fuel for your car and these kind of things, you can increase the performance. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing here as well. If we can optimize the meals, you are, uh, uh, the meals according to your uh, microbiome, or, or, or there are performance benefits. So that's one of the domains. Then, of course, I work with several different partners also where we are, but again, that's very invasive yep. and, and, and uh, dirty work to be uh, uh, exact. Cer certainly living on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. So I'm gonna, that brings us into some of the live co uh, questions from the audience and uh, piggybacking off that a little bit with the data is someone asked essentially, uh, Chris, 
does the military or NASA, for that instance, capture data that helps you improve your preparation? Uh, I, my military active SEAL days were um, 20 years ago, so that my answer is probably stale. At that time, <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, at NASA, uh, on, on a day-to-day -day training kind of thing, life in Houston, Texas, no. But when you're on a mission on the International Space Station, every crew member is a data point for lots of different things, and so we're, we're signed up for different experiments, and um, and and we're being tested. Not every crew member is doing all the same tests in a, on one mission, but it might be over the course of the next ten missions, uh, they get data data points on all how all different people respond, and we vary food and diet and exercise, and they, the scientists come up with a plan, and 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 we're just the, the guinea pig, uh, and, and all of that. Is and life on the International Space Station really is is to improve the quality of life and mission success for going beyond low Earth orbit, going to Mars uh, in the future. And and there's some high school kid out there that will be the the first person, man or woman, on Mars. And the data that we're collecting now kind of helps that. What do they need to do to perform? What do they need to eat? To you know, what do they need to do to be radiation protected during the transit? And all these things. Um, so. The short answer to your question is, while we're on the space station, we are getting sampled all the time. So, so here's a strange connection that you know, we have, I guess. When I was in, in grad school um, at the University of Houston, every once in a while, we'd get blood samples that came from the space station. And whenever they came in, it could be 3 AM, all the grad students had to go into the lab and run the data, and we were looking at immune system markers. So I might have looked at your blood at wow. some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of, of data, Olaf, another question from the audience. What are the potential drawbacks or limitations to relying heavily on data in training and competition? It all boils down to perspective. So if you go by data as something that is absolute, then you lose out on the human aspect. So data should always be viewed as something that is rather uh, uh, information uh, that can help making more objective decisions. But still then, there, there are still things that we, we, we can't measure. And you have to leave room open for that, uh, that uh, you might be able to go faster, for example. So I would say that there's always also a debate about when do you start to bring in instruments as well. Should you do it at kindergarten level, uh, youth level, uh, junior, senior level? When should you bring it in? And I think that it heavily depends on, on the instructions, instruction and perspective that you bring in the sensor. I would be not afraid of all bringing in sensor technology very early on, as long as you make it something playful and educative rather than something that is, let's say, instructive and decisive. Uh, that's, that's where the danger uh, starts to become when if you say that this number is wrong or right. That's the wrong, that, 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 I, that is a belief. I think then you will be, never be able to reach peak human performance. But if you rather say that, okay, uh, this can tell us something about a situation and we can learn from it and become even smarter, making better decisions, then, then I think it's, uh, that's a good way to utilize. So I, I would never, never say that data 
is the fact in a performance situation. It's, in, it's information that can help make better decisions. I like that, seeing this information. Um, Roberta, we'll start with you for this one. Um, how do you coach athletes or yourself to balance the pursuit of peak performance with the risk of injury or burnout? Mm. I always say, uh, coaching athletes now and to myself, you have to really listen to your body and be true. Like, you know, hey, I'm pushing the line here. I'm a little tired, fatigued today. Take a day off. Like, there's, I think over time I've learned, there's, you know, I'd rather show, you want, the goal is to show up to a race in your best per performance, but, you know, doing something risky because your ankle hurts for a day, no, take the break. So I really feel like it's listening to your body, learning, and saying not every day has to be a hard day, you know, so. Chris, I want your perspective on this. How do you, how do you think about balancing that push for, you know, the peak of performance that you can do with the potential negative downside? Yeah. I um, I'll let the, the the physical side of it to to these guys, but on on space flight, it's it's on a, it's not so much the physical performance every day, but it's gas in your tank if there's an emergency situation mm -hmm. that has to happen, and you need to be razor sharp in that moment when it's called upon. So um, we take sleep very very seriously. It's on the on the calendar for eight hours a, a day and you, you could sleep a little longer than that and, 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 and so much so that we police ourselves. If, if I got up to pee in the middle of the night and one of my crewmates was banging away on the computer, it, I'd be like, dude, what are you doing? Go to bed. You know, because it's not an individual decision. It's a decision that's affecting all of us. If the alarm happened right then and we all have to work, you know, we need to be able to, to respond collectively. So uh, on, on the space station and space travel, it's really about sleep management rather than physical performance and pushing yourself and does my ankle hurt? We don't have that challenge. It's really about gas in the tank for when you, when you need it and you don't know you need it. So what are some other things that allow you to fill that tank? Uh, they're, they're largely mental. And, and so again, space station, uh, in a given week, you're working Monday through Friday. It's a busy work day and you're working pretty much all day. Um, and then you go to bed. Saturday, you, you uh, clean up the space station, housekeeping. But Sunday is a day off. And we really try to hold to that. But sometimes there's a spacewalk or there's a cargo ship that arrives that mandates weekend work. And, and you'll have to work through 14 days, 20 straight days without a day off. And the, the people on the ground in mission control really, really start to wring their hands when there's been that long without a day off because what happens is mental fatigue, with mental fatigue, error rates go up, and it, it could be a small error that doesn't really matter, but it could be the switch that throws, uh, that throws off a mission or throws off an experiment, and that's all things we want to avoid. And so, so we're, they're constantly asking the psychologists, the medical guys, and the, mission, and the flight directors, constantly asking the crew, if, if you're in a period of surge, how are you guys doing? You need a day off, yeah? And, and, and a couple years ago when I was chief astronaut NASA, we, we got into this thing of we owe the crew a day off. And so they worked hard for two weeks and then they just keep on going, but we'll pay that day off back next month. Like it's a balance on a checkbook. But we all know like we're people, if you're tired, you need tomorrow off. You don't need 
a Thursday two weeks from now off. It doesn't do any good. You know, I'll work that day, but not right now I'm tired. So, so we've kind of got, got that back under control, but yeah, uh, fatigue management. Olaf, your sport, I think, is one of the toughest in terms of fatigue management because the volumes, intensities across three different disciplines is crazy. What are, what are some of the things that help you make good decisions on, as Chris said, when to take the day off, or in your case, lower that intensity or volume or whatever have you? I, so I think it always comes back to preparation and training. That's, I, uh, if you haven't experienced it in, in training or preparation, then it's hard also to recognize it leading in maybe into competition when it starts to become crucial, but also maybe even more importantly, also in a race itself, because a race is not given uh, before you basically finish the finish line. Um, uh, across the finish line, but uh, I, I think it's, of course, a little bit different from, of course, in a space program um, where you exactly have to maybe gas your tank for uh, if, and you don't know if it's gonna, and you don't know when, and that's, of course, uh, challenging, uh, but how it is but when shit hits the fan. But in, in, in our situations, there it's more about that when you are doing the race, you also have, unfortunately, sometimes to push through those days where you maybe think that I'm, I, I'm, I'm too tired, I, maybe, maybe it's not too good to train tomorrow. You also have there to look a little bit forward and say, okay, but how much experience do we have with this? Do we actually know that you are too fatigued to really push through now or not. And then you do a calculated risk actually to push through that situation as well. Because either you see, okay, if we do it now, if things goes wrong, then we still have enough time to recover, to bring it back in there. And we learn valuable information from that. But pushing yourself through, sometimes you actually have to take calculated risk and actually pull through, but you have to practice it. You have to practice and bring it into your training. Great, all right, we have so we're running low on time, so I'm going to ask this one question to each. Keep your answer brief, okay? We'll start, Roberto. What advice would you, would you give to yourself in your 20s to get where you are today? In my 20s? Um, be kind to yourself, love yourself, and say yes to opportunities. Love it. Hold up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is a tough one. Uh, maybe I just Chris, <laughs> you jump in. Yeah, just back to Bill Belichick. Do your job. Keep my answer brief, so that's my brief answer. <laughs> you, you know, yeah. you nailed it. <laughs> Olaf, you got, you got the, the clock counting you down. You got yeah, 53 no, seconds, yeah. so. No, I, I, I think it's more a reflection of why I came here, so I would basically say maybe that it's, uh, we have to hear the quote, work smarter, not harder, but I think that's wrong. I think rather the thing is that you have to work equally hard all the time, you just get smarter, so you get more done. All right, interesting perspective. Yeah. All right, thank you so much. I just wanna thank you all for being a part of this. Those were uh, great answers and I love this discussion, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Thank you.